When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you struggling to keep up with the latest releases? Would you like to keep an eye on what's coming out in the next few months for work or just your own personal pre-ordering needs? If you need help turbocharging your TBR, Book Riot Insiders is here for you. Our new release index is available at the novel level for just $5 a month, and it's curated by resident Velocireader Liberty Hardy from the All the Books podcast. Liberty keeps track of the most exciting books pre-publication so that you can browse them, know when your favorite author's next novel hit stores, or find your next favorite read. Go to insiders.bookriot.com to sign up now. Hello and welcome to When in Romance, Book Riot's podcast about all things romance book related. I am Trisha and you are probably confused because for over a year Jess has been doing our intro, but unfortunately Jess's superpowers were needed elsewhere this week so she could not join the podcast. The best part about that news, though, is that we were able to get a fantastic guest host to join. So I am joined today by Andy J. Christopher, best-selling author, all-around excellent human. Uh, would we say Chris Evans enthusiast, Andy? I don't know how you would describe yourself. Well, I don't know because a- another romance podcast has like officially shipped me with him, so I don't oh. know if it's like official, official like target of a ship or enthusiast. I'm going to say enthusiast, fan. I think that's great. And also dog mom, which is cool. Yes, yes. You have a, an adorable um, dog that we can see on various uh, in various uh, situations on both Twitter and Instagram. So I have read, I've been a fan of Andy's for a while, uh, particularly her One Night in South Beach series is one of my favorites. One of the things that I always think that you do a really good job of, Andy, is you have this ability to make your male characters super alpha male, but also maintain a lot of autonomy for the female characters. The the relationships are always super consensual. Um, They have a lot of respect for the women in the books. So I don't know if that's a intentional sort of brand. How would you describe your brand? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably my brand. I like, I like um, to write cinnamon roll heroes, like from the corners of the pan. So they're a little bit crusty on the outside, (laughs) but they're really huge softies on the inside. I think I really like write. I was like, my grandfather helped raise me. I think he's like sort of my archetype of manhood. And he was definitely like, he was a truck driver. He was a tough guy. Um, But he was also like very funny and like warm and kind. And so like, I try to have, I try to have all my male characters have those, those qualities to them. Um, And I mean, actually, so I'm writing, I, I, have written and it will be out in November, a book called Not the Girl You Marry. It's more of a rom-com. And the hero in that book is, he's like a guy's guy. He's definitely just like the archetype of this. He's a guy's guy, but he is like very empathic and he's, he's just so swoony. I can't wait for people to meet him. I'm like super excited about it. I can't wait to meet him either. And you said this coming out, is it November 12th? I think that one's coming out. Yes, November 12th. Is it up for pre-order now? Yes, it is up for pre-order at, you know, most retailers now. Um, you can see the cover and my dog is actually on the cover. Obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I wrote a French bulldog into the book and my editor asked, like on our, on our first like editorial call, she said, why, why is the dog's name not Gus? And I was like, I thought that would be a little too on the nose. She's like, no, the dog's name should be Gus. And then I get the cover mock-ups and there's, there's Gus staring out, like wondering why these two people can't like get their acts together yeah. mm-hmm. and um, get together. So, and it's, it's sort of like a millennial, more diverse take on the trope in how to lose a guy in 10 days. So it's actually how to lose a girl in 10 days. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, and I'm excited because a few author friends have, have read the book and they, you know, 
are really into Hannah, who's the the female main character, and um, she's kind of a pill, and I really love her. So I'm really, I'm really stoked for for readers to meet her, like as as arcs slowly trickle their way out and into the world. So, so I don't know if you're allowed to say this. Is it part of a series, or is it a standalone, or is it TBD? It's totally, I mean, it can totally stand alone, but I'm actually working on the second book of the series now. I don't think I can say much about like who the book is about. Ooh, that'll be even more fun. Yeah, but you, you'll you you'll definitely meet one of the main characters in the first book. And um, I have figured out a way to like work Gus into the second book too. So like, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like that could be the, uh, the, the could be referred to as the French Bulldog series. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, I can tell you what the title is. It's not that kind of guy. So uh-huh. it's uh, sticking with them. Not that. Not the girl you marry, and not that kind of guy sort of theme. But yeah, so I'm, I'm in the midst of drafting that one. I think it should be just as fun, and I think it'll. It's going to be completely different from the first one, and in, in some ways, and similar in other ways. So I'm, I'm excited about it, though. Well, maybe you can come hang out again when that one's done. Tell us all about it. We'll see what happens. I hope so. Definitely. Well, uh, speaking of hanging out here uh, on When in Romance, we have a super packed agenda full of weird news and bad news and some good recommendations. So I guess we may as well jump right in. Fantastic. Um, The first thing that we were going to cover is a a kind of follow-up piece on the copy-paste Chris situation. It's unrelated, except that the copy-paste Chris sort of helped bring it to light. Um, Shiloh Walker has a thread on um, her Twitter stream where she's talking, which we'll link to. She talks about something called book regurgitation that apparently there have been folks talking about, a small group of readers have been talking about it for a while. Um, A lot of us had no idea that this was going on. Essentially what it is, is someone takes a book that they have written. So, you know, we'll just say Jane Doe takes a book that, you know, she's written, decides that she's gotten out of it what she can get, unpublishes it, and then sells the text to a different author, quote unquote, a different human, let's call it, um, to republish as their own, literally the exact same words under a different title. That sounds bananas, but is that how you, am I getting that wrong at all, Andy? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly how it works. So because I think the the sales algorithm works so that new releases get a boost, um, and a lot of these sort of book click farms um, and and page read-through farms, they want to get the boost and they want to release a book every month, and you can either... um, you know, hire ghostwriters, which is what copy paste Chris said she did, and it sounds like she did, and you know, and cut corners in the way that she and break the law in the way that she did. <laughs> or another option, apparently, that people are exploring is you know buying each other's books and then republishing them. And it's hard to believe that. And I think it's been going on for a long time. It makes sense to me um, because a lot of you could tell that a lot of like the books stuff, like the the books that were stuffed with other books and things were just dominating the, you know, the top charts on Amazon for a really, really long time, especially in romance. And it doesn't really to me, it just doesn't like really serve readers. Um, It's more it's like this is like a money making scheme. And it's seems to me like it's a, a bit of a Ponzi scheme because like once people are onto it, then then I think Amazon can pull them. So yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, I don't know, you know, when we were talking about the copy paste Chris stuff, it does seem like Amazon maybe has more responsibility here than they are acknowledging or taking, right? I mean, with a lot of the, I don't, with, I mean, with the plagiarism stuff, for sure, there's got to be, I mean, if there's an algorithm for colleges and universities to run a paper through a, you know, something to make sure that there's no plagiarism involved. Amazon for sure should be able to get something like that. With this, I guess it's a little bit trickier because if somebody has, I mean, I don't know that this is actually illegal. I don't think it's illegal. I think it's unethical. I mean, I think it's not like, a. I mean, there, there's probably an argument for it being unethical. I'm not sure about the legality of it. Yeah. It's definitely not honest with respect to readers because you're as an author, like I'm like, I'm also, I'm a businesswoman, but I'm also an artist. And so like my books, they're, they're like a part of me. And like my brand is like 
you know, it's not all of who I am, but it's, you know, a specific part of who I am. And so if you're, if you're holding yourself out as an author, it seems dishonest to be selling books that like, I'm, I'm sure people hired ghostwriters for, you know, totally legitimate reasons. But like, if you don't have artistic control over a product, it seems dishonest to me to be holding it out as, as your artistic product. Yeah, no, it totally does. And I think, like you said, it doesn't serve readers for a couple of different reasons. I mean, you could be buying a book that you checked your library to make sure that you don't have and find that you have actually read it. And I know a lot of it happens on Kindle Unlimited. And so people aren't necessarily buying, but some you can buy books that are on Kindle Unlimited. You know, you can get those books. And so I think, yeah, there's just a lot of, I don't know, like I said, if it's not illegal, you're, you're, I think you're right that there are some, some very dubious ethical boundaries. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not, I'm, you know, when I write a book, I want to write the best book I can. I want readers to enjoy it, escape for a few hours, get what they want out of it and, you know, get their money's worth. And with KU, there's sort of a a weird incentive system there because you're paying a subscription fee, um, a monthly subscription fee. And so you're getting as many books as you want. And so if you borrow a book from Kindle Unlimited and it turns out to be like, oh, I already read this or it sounds too familiar and I don't like this. I know where this is going. You can just return it and get a new book. But so it's in terms of the harm, it's not huge unless people are really are, are purchasing the books for their for their collections. Yeah. And when we, when we uh, in our last episode, Jess and I talked about rereads, this was not what I had in mind when I was saying that I was a rereader. No. And I'm a huge rereader. So like I, you know, I reread Lauren Dane's like Brown Family series probably at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few other authors that I, you know, will read over and over and over again. Um, we'll talk about later in my recommendations. Uh-huh. But not the regurgitation. <laughs> no, I don't want to buy a book and then that and then think that I'm like losing my marbles because I, you know, I haven't bought I I bought the book before and read it and it's thinking it's a new book. So, yeah. Yeah. And like we said before, we were chatting a bit before we started recording. There's not a whole lot to say about this, except this is happening. Beware of it. And I guess if you're doing it, stop doing it. The end. Yeah. I'm not sure how engaged any of the, like the businesses who are doing this are in the romance community. So hopefully, hopefully it reaches them through the grapevine. Like they should be doing this. (laughs) What? All of the people aren't just listening to one in romance all across the land. Well, that's disappointing, but I guess it is what it is. But yeah, so like I said, there's not a lot. There's not a lot to that, but it's yeah. Beware as a reader. Um, beware and be wary. Uh, but speaking of um, books that are new and are like legitimately new, and they are not. They've never been published, and they are by authors who write and create all of their own work. Uh, I'm gonna hop on and do another ad spot. Does that sound okay with you? Perfect. All right. So this episode of Wedding Romance is sponsored by In Her Sights by Katie Ruggle. Brownie hunter Molly Pax fought hard for everything she has, turning the bail recovery business she shares with her sisters into an unqualified success. So when their sticky-fingered mother jumps bail and puts the childhood home up as collateral, Molly is horrified. To make matters worse, every two-bit criminal in the Rockies now sees her family's misfortune as their next big break. She needs help stat. Enter rival bounty hunter John Carmody, six feet of pure trouble with a cocky grin to match. John's the most cheerfully, annoyingly gorgeous frenemy Molly's ever had the pleasure of defeating and may be her only hope of making it out of this mess alive. Author Katie Ruggle has had four Amazon Best Books of the Month and an Amazon Best Book of the Year for her Rocky Mountain Canine Unit series book, Run to Ground. New York Times bestselling author Charlene Harris loves Katie's books and has said that her characters are sharply drawn and vividly alive. Ruggle has experience both as a survivalist and is a graduate of the Police Academy, so her storylines and characters are very authentic. In Her Sights is the first book in a brand new series, so if you've never read Katie before, this is a great place to start. Uh, And the whole series is about a band of female bounty hunters deep in the heart of the Rocky Mountains, along with the men who steal their hearts. So thanks so much to In Her Sights by Katie Ruggle for sponsoring this episode. Um, And Andy has verified that Katie is a lovely human as well as a great author. So that's exciting. She is. She's very, very nice. Oh, that is, that was like a lovely, fun little interlude. But now, unfortunately, we have to uh, talk about our our main story for the podcast today, which is the Rita is so white, gosh, garbage fire. Is that maybe a good descriptor? I don't even know what the descriptor is for that. 
garbage fire. And so far, I have um, remain. I have kept the non-explicit, but I'm I'm going to say clusterfuck is, okay. mm-hmm. is really the most accurate. Um, yeah, yeah. The, it's it's a mess. Yeah, it is. And so, um, like I told Andy right before we started recording, Jess and I recorded our last episode the day before the Rita nominations came out. So um, we have not talked about it at all. If you read Kissing Books, which you should do because it's great, uh, Jess has covered it a few times there. But the nutshell version of the beginning of this story, there are so many like weird twists and turns that have happened over the last couple of weeks. But the beginning of the story is, as was the case last year, the Rita Award nomination list was incredibly white um, and pretty exclusive to uh, heterosexual and cis couples and characters as well. Uh, So there was unsurprisingly um, a huge backlash. And I think maybe the bigger story here, I mean, obviously it's horrifying that then there were like maybe three authors of color nominated. I think the bigger story here, and I'd be interested in what you think, Andy, is the backlash and the way that people sort of handled themselves in that public discourse, which is to say many people did not handle themselves well. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know how to handle yourself well in that situation because like, you know, as an author of color, I'd struggled with whether I wanted to like say anything about it at all because I had entered my books and obviously they hadn't finals. And so that's disappointing, but I don't want to seem like a sore loser. And also I have, you know, multiple friends who finaled who you know, their books are great and totally deserving of being finalists in the Rita. And so like, it's just one of those situations where I, you know, took some time before I said anything in public. You know, like I talked to like my friends who had won and was, you know, excited and congratulatory towards them before I I said anything out loud. And, you know, for me, so, like it's often useful to like, take a minute and try to like figure out what how I feel and what I think about something before before saying anything. And I also stayed entirely off of the RWA Publish Author Network forum because from what I've heard that is where a lot of um mostly white ladies got very upset that people were upset that um the finalists were largely white and cis and 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 straight. Yeah, and I think that's those are the reactions that I was a little bit definitely disappointed by, and in some cases, a little surprised by. So I was not even, my thought is not that the people who are pointing out the problem or expressing their frustration with the problem maybe were a little out of line. It's the folks like, I mean, it's pretty well known now, so I will use her name, uh, Jerry Adair, who was uh, supposed to be this year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner had a few days after the um, nominations came out expressed that she thought that the nominees should be allowed to celebrate for a few days before people started expressing their frustration, which is an argument that I don't necessarily buy. But I think if she had just made that argument and left it alone, she might have been in a better spot than the way that she kind of handled people who were kind of trying to help her understand why they didn't agree with that perspective. It kind of blew up a little bit into she, like I said, I think handled her the exchange fairly poorly and in the end ended up um, withdrawing from the award. So there won't be a lifetime achievement award winner this year. I mean, that was a mess. I just, I mean, what I said, like what I said before was like, I think there was an assumption that everyone just sort of lashed out immediately. Mm -hmm. And like, I think most people had the same reaction that I did, you know, you're having your disappointment. And I think, you know, everyone who I saw who expressed disappointment at the whiteness, just (laughs) let's call it the whiteness. I mean, it is what it is, right? (laughs) probably did, you know, take a beat and and think about what they were saying. And I don't think that a lot of the people who expressed uh, disappointment at the disappointed people really did the same. Yeah. Like, I, I think, you know, full disclosure, I'm biracial. So I'm, I'm not a white person, um, which you wouldn't know because you can't see me. I... There is like a certain amount of work in being a person of color and being a public person of color that you're always sort of calibrating yourself to the whiteness and how the whiteness is going to react. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea that someone who is a Lifetime Achievement Award winner in a professional organization would tell people days later what kind of reaction they were allowed to have to something that is not just disappointing, it's disheartening. 
And it's, you know, like, it's one of those places where you see, yes, we still live in a society and we work in an industry that has, that has to deal with its systemic racism problem and its bias issues and its, you know, heteronormativity problem. Yeah. I mean, I think all of that makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering what you think of the, uh, because you must be a, you must be a member of RWA. Yes, I am. I'm wondering what you think of the, um, reaction or the, their sort of response, which so um, Helen K. DeMond is the president of RWA and she released a statement on behalf of the board talking about some very specific changes that they're planning for next year. And the one that stuck out to me, so I didn't realize, and I think a lot of us didn't realize until uh, all of this kind of went down, as they say, um, is that the preliminary round is judged by peer review. So if you're entering, you have to judge, I think, other categories other than the ones that you are a part of. Um, which I talked to a friend of mine who is also an author and who has been a part of some of these kinds of contests and awards and uh, these sorts of things. And he was floored by that. He could not believe that if you are entering, you are also judging. Um, and I don't even, I, I actually meant to, to take a look and see if the Edgar Awards or the Hugo Awards or any of the others have that kind of strategy in place. I was really surprised by that, but there, it sounds that the 2020 Rita contest, according to the statement that we'll link to in the show notes, um, will not be judged by the same peer review process. So they're, they're taking a look at that. They're taking a look at a few other, um, you know, elements of what they can change. They did affirmatively state that there's a serious problem. This is a quote with reader bias and the judging of the Rita's. This is most evident in the preliminary round of the Rita's is the quote. So like I said, we'll, we'll link to this statement. I think it's worth reading, but I'm curious what you think. For kind of from like the inside, how likely you think this is that to make a difference? I think taking away sort of the peer judging, especially of, um, you know, categories that you don't really write in or necessarily read um, is is hugely helpful. I'm not sure how they're, they're going to replace it or elicit nominations. My concern is that it will sort of erase the progress that like self like independent publishers have made in terms of getting their books seen and recognized because if it becomes sort of like if it becomes like how how well known your book is it could just be you know the most well known books that everyone's heard about will will get recognition and and I w- would hope that there is a sort of a more open process to get books that aren't don't necessarily get huge publicity pushes seen However, I think not having peers review the books will help with some of the bias problem. I mean, I think we saw with the Rip Bottish report, it's, it's, you know, major publishers aren't publishing um, authors of color and marginalized authors with other marginalizations as much as they're, as they're publishing white authors. But, you know, I think a lot of publishers are working really hard to acquire more books by authors of color. Yeah. And about characters of color. So if you don't have like the the thousands of people who enter the contest judging, I think that does go a long way in ameliorating the bias of the preliminary rounds. And we'll see what happens. But I mean, there were a lot of there were quite a few authors who came out and said after the, the finalists were announced that no, don't get mad that my book wasn't a finalist. I didn't enter because I think Helen Wong said you know, I didn't enter because I didn't feel comfortable entering in contests that no black author had ever had ever won. And I think, you know, that says a lot that one of one of the best books that I read in 2018 didn't even feel like she should enter. And I, I know um, Alexa Martin, who's who wrote Intercepted, which is one of the other best books I read in 2018. And full disclosure, I share a publisher with them. So but I love their books. <laughs> yeah. I don't share a publisher with them and I love their books too. <laughs> yeah. I just want to make sure everyone knows that, yes, I do share a publisher with them. Um, but I, I mean that she didn't enter either. Like that, that to me says, you know, the contest would have more prestige if it was more inclusive um, and equitable. And, you know, um, yeah. And Susanna Kersley and um, somebody else whose name I can't think of right now, a couple of authors have pulled their books that were named as finalists because of of the issues. But when you were talking about the prestige of the contest, I guess one of the things that I sort of wonder too is, and I, I know the answer, but part of me wonders why so much stock is put in the readers. You know, like Beverly Jenkins is another author who never enters. It just seems like 
if you are, maybe it's because it's, it's a known perspective on the inside of the industry that if you, that the readers are, you know, pretty flawed as an award, but I, you know, I understand that as an author, you still want to be able to have some level of acclaim or award. And now that the RT awards are no longer, um, maybe that's the only option, but I mean, there is kind of a part of me that thinks, you know, maybe we should all just acknowledge that the readers are not a big deal, which I don't think we can do. It just, I don't know. I, I kind of went back and forth on that, both as a reader um, and also as sort of somebody from the outside perspective who can see how problematic this is. I mean, the thing is, like, I want them to be a big deal. Like, I am rooting for the readers. And like, like I said, I do have friends whose books have vinyl, whose books I've read and who have excellent books. And the authors of color who have vinyl are like Kennedy Ryan's long shot is just beyond excellent. Like it is the first book that kept me up until 2 a.m. was actually Block Shot because I read that first, but it was like the second book that kept me up until 2 a.m. in years. Mm -hmm. And so like it's it's one of those things where I like my grandmother on my dad's side, who was who was black, used to say, used to have the saying, and it's you know, every I think, you know, black mother or grandmother probably has said this, like you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And Kennedy's clearly twice as good um, as anything I've read, you know, in years. And the fact that like, she's like, one of the only ones says a lot, because I know that there are other authors who are just excellent. And, you know, I hope they entered their books. And I but I'm upset not to see them final. Yeah. And we, yeah, we talked about that um, Kennedy Ryan book on the last episode. So, so good. It's, uh, it'll destroy you a little bit, but in a good way, it'll be fine. It'll all work out. Um, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hope, I guess it's, this is sort of a stay tuned situation. Um, it'll be interesting to see what comes of this, you know, Helen K. Dumont and, and the board do seem dedicated to really trying to get it figured out. Um, I think folks were a little disappointed that there wasn't more progress from last year, but they're making some, you know, some very clear changes this year. So that is coming year. So hopefully, hopefully that will make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I do hope it'll make a difference. But it, we do have a problem when books that are like, recognize, I think Alyssa Cole's A Princess in Theory was on the New York Times list of notable books for the year, which never happens in romance. And to see that a book like that, not final, mm -hmm. and see, you know, multiple romances by authors of color, um, by black women, not final in a in a contest that's supposed to be the best of the best of romance when they've gotten best of, you know, all the genres, even given the sort of soft bigotry against romance with within the wider, like sort of literary critical world is it's a problem. And it's, you know, staring us in the face and hopefully we can we can face it and, and make changes. Indeed. Maybe, yeah, maybe next year we will see uh, Not the Girl You Marry on, on the list. And we'll know that we've, we've made some good progress. I, I don't know about that, but like, you know, <laughs> that would be fantastic. I would be honored. I, I hope it's that good. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see what happens. So anyway, like I said, folks uh, who are keeping an eye on this should definitely subscribe to Kissing Books. The link is in the show notes because Jess has done a great job of um, keeping that information rolling with every email and we will link to the book riot post about the Ritas as well so before we jump into i think probably a little bit more conversation about kennedy ryan yep i'll do our last sponsor for the day which is the audiobook edition of the girl he used to know by tracy jarvis graves jonathan and annika first met at chess club in college where jonathan lost his first game of chess and his heart Brilliant but shy, Annika prefers to be alone, but Jonathan accepts that about her, admiring Annika, quirks and all. Their relationship that follows is tumultuous but strong until an unforeseen tragedy forces them apart. A decade later, fate brings them back together. She's a librarian, and he's a divorced Wall Street whiz seeking a fresh start. Their feelings are instantly rekindled, but until they confront the fears and anxieties that drove them apart, their second chance will end before it truly begins. The audiobook of The Girl He Used to Know is read by Audi Award-winning narrators Fred Berman and Kathleen McInerney. Sorry if I pronounced her name wrong, Kathleen. I apologize. Uh, Annika, the main character, is on the spectrum. But again, it's one of those things that Jonathan appreciates her for who she is and meets her where she is. You will laugh, you will cry, and you'll yell at all of these characters. And when you're finished, you'll wish you could start listening all over again. Are you a hopeless romantic? The Girl He Used to Know is perfect for fans of Jojo Moyas, but this audiobook has all of the heart 
and none of the heartbreak. So thanks again to the girl, the audiobook edition of The Girl He Used to Know uh, for sponsoring the show. We will make sure that the link to that is in the show notes. It is available now. All right. So our next topic was uh, a suggestion of yours, Andy. So you want to talk to us a little bit about it? So I feel like a lot of people have been talking a lot about content warnings and trigger warnings. And I think this is specific to Launch Up by Kennedy Ryan because it does include a graphic depiction of domestic abuse and sexual assault. And so quite a few people have said, you know, this didn't come with a trigger warning, it's irresponsible, or content warning. I feel like trigger is not not a good word. And I was thinking about it and I'm like, yeah, because the warning was that there could be sensitive content for some readers. I'm like, and I came to the book knowing what I was in for because a friend had started reading it ahead of me and said, just so you know, this is happening. And she knows my history of being a sexual assault survivor. So she knew she was like looking out for me. And I was thinking about it and I realized, oh, I get all of my content warnings to other reader friends. Like I barely pay attention to sit like the blurb like if the blurb looks good I'm just gonna probably read it anyway as long as a friend says it's good because I get all of my reading recommendations through friends and, and podcasts like this one so um I'm you know getting the information from someone who's read the book and so I was just thinking I was like but I like if someone had who I didn't trust if the if I didn't know anything about the book and all I knew was that there was a uh, a, a graphic depiction of of these sensitive topics. And I didn't know the author. I hadn't read any of her other books. I don't know if I could have, I, I would have opened it, but I'm so glad I did. So it's like when I'm trying to give content warnings, I'm saying, just so you know, this is in here, but please read the book because it's important. What What is the objection that people, because I, I there's been a little bit of a dust up in various places on Twitter. Honestly, I it's not even a big enough thing that I flagged um, or bookmarked the tweets, but it seems like there are some folks who prefer not to have a content warning for whatever reason. Do you know why? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any reason not to have a content warning or if like, I feel responsible if I'm recommending a book to someone, I need to like know enough about them mm-hmm. to know that I'm not going to like harm them from recommending the book. But also I want to acknowledge that even like, as a as a sexual assault survivor, like I think one of the most annoying things is people assume that you're like fragile mm-hmm. going forward, and and not you know the reality is like you put yourself back together again, or you're healing or on the road to healing, and seeing it, like part of your own experience on the page can be cathartic and healing in the same way that reading something light and fluffy where everyone is is physically safe at all times can be also healing. So and. I want those things at different times. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that the the happy ever after extends to everyone, unless you're a jerk, as I think Jess would say. Uh, but it should extend to everyone. And it's important for that to include people who are survivors of violence or assault. Um, I was thinking, I think Talia Hibbert uh, in Damaged Goods, she did a really extensive job of detailing both what was coming and where. So you could skip a specific chapters, you know, for example, at the beginning of Damaged Goods, she's got um, a list that says, you know, chapter five is a detailed discussion of child abuse. So if that's not where you need to be, then that's, that's okay. Cole McCade has also been really good at about this. The thing that is a little tricky is that if you are reading an e-version of a book, a lot of times it will take you directly to chapter one. And so you don't get that, the content warning, unless you seek it out. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if I read differently as an author now. But like, I can often tell when a book's going to go someplace where I don't want it to go. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to call out the book because I really like this author's other books. And I like, I read a book recently where like, I think it was like chapter two or three and they introduced an old dog and I knew the book was going to have some violence in it. And I was like, oh shit, the dog's going to die. Mm-hmm. And there's no content warning. Like... I want a content warning if a dog dies, <laughs> like almost more than if a person dies, especially if the person's like not, obviously we're reading romance, a main character should not die. But like, if mm-hmm. like I knew it and I kept reading and it kept becoming more clear to me because like this author was dropping, dropping the hints that this was going to happen. And I was like, oh crap, that's, that's, this is not going to be good. I don't know. But, and now I'm like, I don't know if I can trust this author again. 
But like, I should have trusted myself and noped out of the book mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. So I think when you're reading something with some, like, you can tell when you're reading Longshot, you're like, oh, this guy's bad news. This is going to be bad. But what I felt safe about is that I'm like, I know she's going to get to a happily ever after. I know that's going to happen. So she's going to be fine. You know, her daughter's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. This is this is going to be fine. I can I can get through this. And so like what? But I knew like I think it was like chapter one or the prologue. I was like, oh, okay. So this there's going to be abuse in the story. Mm-hmm. And I knew that Kennedy had done interviews with both survivors and I think counselors and and had beta readers who had been survivors. And she was to me very responsible with respect to how she treated the subject matter. Like it, she didn't pull punches, but it was it was responsible. I'm gonna more want a trigger or a content warning when, like, the author might be a great storyteller, but not the most you know responsible with respect to sensitive topics. Mm-hmm. And and so if I'm if I'm gonna, my head would have you know exploded had it not been sort of responsibly depicted. But it's. You know, I think that's why networks of romance readers are so important is because we hopefully, at least in, in sort of my network, hopefully we're taking care of each other and, and giving each other a heads up with respect to what is, you know, an intense book, but so well written and such a good story that it's important. Mm-hmm. And like a book that is going to make people like upset for days. But you never, as an author, you never want to hear like, I wasn't okay for days after I read your book. And so we're all really trying not to, to go there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I definitely cried through a lot of long shots, but you know, it was, it was like a good cry. I also read hookshot, like, and I had like the same experience where it was like, like if an author can, you know, sort of tap into empathy, I think it's an important story to tell. But if someone says, you know, they can't, they can't read the content, then, you know, that's, you know, respect. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think everyone needs to know for themselves kind of where they are. But I think you're right. I think one of the great things about the romance community, and we've, you know, I've seen it on Twitter. People will say, hey, is going to be read such and such? I'm trying to make sure it doesn't have a particular thing or it seems like something might happen that I, you know. So yeah, I think to the extent that an author can provide that for themselves, then that's uh, even better. And if not, then hopefully folks can find it elsewhere in the community. Any other content warning thoughts? That was just that was just my main thought. I mean, I I think one of my good friends, Adriana Anders, posted about this that you know, as a survivor, she wants to write happily ever afters that include herself. And you know, I want the same thing. I haven't really dealt with this issue in my books because I my books tend to be pretty light. Like I was joking that I write funny books for horny girls. Like so. How can we didn't call that your brand? Funny books for horny girls. I like that. I, I think it. I think it is. I, it's something I'm toying with. Um, and she posted a great thread about how books that have like really intense subject matter and include survivors having like on the road to healing, getting their happily ever after. Like that is part of like I think why romances can be so important and so like therapeutic to readers, and you know it ha- why it has been to me. But like I said, I'm a mood reader. Sometimes I want to read like something like super light and fun and like a happily ever after with like just big feels. And other times I just, I want to be taken apart and put back together again. Yeah. Speaking of Adriana Unders, her um, blank canvas books are another really good example of books that are very, very intense, but um, man, under her skin, it's, yeah, there's a lot of things in them that are really dark, but uh, in a sort of good and cathartic way. Yeah, I tell this story all the time. I first met Adriana a few years ago at a conference and I just read, well, I, I first met her at like a lunch and then I think I had read um, Under Her Skin and she was probably terrified. I just looked at her and I was like, I hate you. Your books are so good. <laughs> like, you have to be my friend, which is, is you know, probably not very polite, but she she was open to it. But yeah. I mean, if the fact that she's open to it is a good sign that uh, probably you guys are, are are destined to be friends. Yes, yes. So, I mean, her books are very, like, her books can be super intense and super emotional. And she can do, like, the sort of most outlandish things in books and pull it off because I think she does it with empathy. And, it, it, and there's just something really universal about how she you know, gets the emotion out on the page. And I honestly don't know how she does it. And so she's you know, my sort of teacher in that regard. 
Well, first recommendation of the episode uh, is the uh, it's is it Adriana Anders? I've only ever seen it. Adriana Adriana Anders, yeah. Well, I've been pronouncing it wrong for years. I apologize, Adriana. Um, so that is recommendation one. But you uh, were kind enough to come stocked with a whole variety of recommendations. I think mostly around erotic romance, right? Yeah. So I um, there was like an article, and I can't remember where it was published, but it, it was like sort of a Franken article from different iterations of an you know, recommending quote unquote erotic romances. And it recommended a whole lot of romances that are great, but not erotic. Oh Um, yeah. I remember that. And so I, so I had fun spending the afternoon, like thinking about which books like that I would recommend as erotic romances. And so this is sort of a limited list because as like a cisgendered heterosexual woman who also happens to like MMF, um, like it's that's sort of like the universe this list lives in. Um, and it, so I am, you know, I need to try to like branch out and read other things, but these are the books that I personally find <laughs> super sexy. Um, that, you know, I go back to if, if that's what I need. And so I shared the list and then, you know, one of my, one of my favorite authors, Laura Kay was like, your list is great. And so I want to share it more widely. <laughs> oh, hey, And here we are. This is perfect. So I think any list of uh, best erotic romances that doesn't include Charlotte Stein is not a complete list. So I, I usually recommend people start with like The Professor and then move to Never Sweeter because The Professor, it's like sort of, it, it's the trope of the, you know, surly professor. He's very repressed and her books are always like, she's English. And so these books are always like very sort of almost like, you know, repressed Englishmen and like incredibly horny women who are like, you know, sort of prim. And it's just like, you know, you can almost like feel like the clothes ripping off. They're so visceral. And they're like, they're so close, like the closeness of the POV. It's just, they're delicious. She's, she's also like someone I recommend to people who are really into literary fiction because her books are super, super literary. It's a good, uh, note for people to know what they're getting into. Yes. So her books are like super heady and and literary, but like so sexy and just so well written. Like if you're a writer and you pick up Charlotte's Lane, just be prepared to feel real bad about yourself for a few days. <laughs> well, it's a different kind of content warning. I think that's great. Yeah. That's my content warning for Charlotte's Lane book. <laughs> um, and then it, you know, always second on my list is Kara McKenna, and she's in. She's on a little writing break, but I, I really hope she comes back soon. She wrote this. Uh, she wrote this like short story that also she's republished with like epilogues, and it's called Curio, and it's um it's so specific because it it's a French agoraphobe male prostitute and an American woman who lives in Paris who is a virgin who goes to see him in his apartment. And most of the book takes place, you know, in the four walls of his apartment. And it's intensely sexy. And if you are like into like books where the hero, like into virgin heroes, like it is one of the best. It is so sexy. There's a scene where she like watches him take a shower. It's unbelievable. All right. I already have like in what in the amount of time that it took you to discuss it, I've already found it online. So that's great. Oh, good. (laughs) And then Sierra Simone, specifically Priest by Sierra Simone, is the single sexiest, filthiest book I've ever read. I read it like publicly on the Metro in DC. Mm -hmm. Um, I was bright read the whole time because it's about a priest. So, you know, content warning, if, if priests, you can't get your head around it that but it's the heroine is of age but it is so sexy and it you know part of it is like the taboo of it i think mm-hmm. um and i'm also like really into like sort of erotic romances that have like a religious element and so sarah mclean always talks about how it's the closest erotic romance can get to inspirational because there is sort of a god element to it and sort of as an addendum to that Tamsin Parker wrote this book called Craving Light, and it's it's a sh- it's a novella, and it's about a woman who becomes like Orthodox Jewish later in life after her first marriage, and she enters into like a somewhat arranged marriage with this with this widower, and they you know discover that they both have like the same kink, and it's super sexy. It's one of those books that like made me like 
not do what I was supposed to do that day. Yeah, that book is fantastic. Um, I've talked about that one a little bit. And Jess, I think, has talked about uh, Priest. But yeah, I, Craving Flight is a favorite of mine as well. Um, and it, sort of on the MMF, you know, sort of in that spectrum, like one of my favorites that I've recently, well, I have two favorites that I recently read. Sierra Simone wrote one called Misadventures of a Curvy Girl. And it's, you know, has a has a fat heroine. And she does that so well, because she she depicts sort of having a complicated relationship with one's body, but, but also sort of working towards this ideal of self-acceptance, which I think was really resonant. And then, you know, the two hero, it's just, it's like a, it's a perfect novel. She just plots it out so well. It's just well-crafted and ultra sexy. So she's great at that. And then my other favorite is, so Katie Robert, she's one of my friends. She's totally crazy. I love it in the best way. She was like, I'm going to write this MMF romance between a prince, his bodyguard, and this bartender they meet. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, there's three different books in this little mini series. And the first one um, is called There's for the Night. And it's very short. And it's just the night they meet. Um, and then I can't remember, like, then there's like Forever There's and There's Ever After, I think are the, the three titles. I didn't write the two second two titles down. But it sort of follows them through like, there's like romantic suspense elements to it. It's you know, smoking hot, sexy, there's boy touching, which is is one of my requirements for an MMF. Like I don't necessarily like to read MFM because I feel like the swords have to cross. It's it's a rule for me. So that's great. And then I think I have three more if we have time. I'm ready. Bring it. This is an important list. We have to get it to the people. (laughs) Right. Okay. So one of my favorite author finds in the past couple of years is Eve Dangerfield. She is Australian. Her books, you know, sound Australian. And like, like, I love them. And her heroines are exactly, you know, what I want a heroine to be. They're so, I hate this word spunky, but they're spunky. And they, you know, they take no shit. So Open Hearts was the first book I read by her. But I think the first book in that like duet was Locked Box. And they're both just wonderful. Um, and then another book that I recommend by her with the content warning that there is like a, a daddy kink in it. So that's not for everyone. It's definitely for me, but it's not for everyone. It's called Act Your Age. And that's wonderful. And then how I found Eve was through Tessa Bailey, because there was a reference to a Tessa Bailey book in Open Hearts. And so Tessa was excited about that. And my favorite, like all of her books that I've read, I'm behind by a couple, but they're in my TBR. I save books sometimes for when I need them. Like her sexiest hero and her heroes are just over the top sexy is uh is Porter in Driven by Fate. And he's like a British ex-spy and it's like sort of tangentially related to this kink club, but it's a category length romance where this it is filthy. There's a scene in a cab, it's unbelievable. And then my final recommendation as an author, I think everyone and this list is is pretty white. There's not a lot of my favorite authors of color, you know, right straight up erotic romance. Mm-hmm. But Naima Simone, specifically her Sin and Ink and Passion and Ink, these two books that have just come out that are are connected. Everything she writes is just so, so sexy. Like I don't she had this series that was set in a in a sex club. And that was the first thing I read by her. And I was like, who is this woman? Like I'm like at Christmas and like hiding in a closet with my phone. Mm-hmm. you know frantically paging and sweating like <laughs> this book she's like her books are so sexy like over the top and she weaves in sort of the erotic journey through the plot in such a lovely way also her, her football series the third book it's like scoring the player's baby i'm not usually a ac- huge accidental pregnancy fan i think i, I like it but it's got to be done right like i was like oh yeah i want that hero to make me pregnant so that's fine <laughs> like, okay this is yeah that's a helpful metric. I think that's great that that's where, like, you know where you are. Yeah. So I just, all of those authors, again, if you are in the specific mood that you need, we're going to call them one-handed reads. <laughs> and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That are well done. Those are, those are my racks. Yeah. Boy, I don't think I can make that the show title, but <laughs> if I could, 
you better believe that that is what it would be. I will mention too, uh, Rebecca Weatherspoon is another yes. who, author who does, uh, in particular, her Beers and Bondage series is the one that's coming to mind. So Sanctuary oh, is yes. the first of those. What is wrong with me? That was on my original list. Rebecca Weatherspoon. I've most recently read Rafe, which is super sexy. Oh, yeah. But it's also like, it because there are the plot moppets, the children mm-hmm. who are adorable. And she she actually made me like children in a romance, which is amazing. See? She has superpowers. She does. She's she does have superpowers. Everything I read by her, I just am so so happy. And I like slide into her DMs, and she's probably like, "Oh God, Andy, get out of here." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like her Fit series also yes. is, has is pretty erotic. The So Sweet series, I never think of as being erotic, but it actually is. It's just also very light. It's like a rom. It's erotic rom com, which you don't get a lot of. Now I'm just like scrolling through her stuff. Oh, and I will mention to you, if you are uh, looking for a male, male erotic romance, one that we've talked about a few times uh, here on this show is Syncopation by Anna Zabo. So we'll make sure we link to those two. I was frantically writing the whole time that Annie was giving her list out so that I could make sure that we don't miss any of these, but we will save all of you the trouble and make sure that they're all linked in our show notes. Was, it, was that all of them, Andy? I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did I? Did you get everything? That was it. That was. I mean, I, I feel like I, I spent a lot of time. But I mean, I assume we'll give out my Twitter handle at the end. You can. Um, I would love for like recommendations if you have them. You know, hop up in my mentions because I'm super happy to like find new authors. So. Well, and if people do have recommendations or just want to tell you how much they love this list or what we should add to it or whatever else, where would they find you on Twitter? So I'm at author Andy J on Twitter and Instagram. I post a lot. Uh, I've started posting a lot of Instagram stories. There's a lot of dog stuff. There's some of me just like talking while drinking wine, which can be fun for some people. And Twitter, I, I spend far too much time there. But yes, you can find me in both those places. Well, so that'll be so helpful. People will know exactly where to find you. And I am still at Trisha Haley Brown, both on Instagram and Twitter. Although on Twitter, there is no O on Brown because of Twitter limits, uh, as folks probably know by now. Jess, I will make sure that her social information is also in the show notes and she'll be back next episode. Andy, any parting thoughts? Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. This has been so fun. And I hope to you know come back soon. And we'll talk more. Yes. Well, thank you again. Uh, and thanks to Gus for being so patient. He did, I think, a really good job yeah. of being super quiet through the whole podcast. He so did. give him uh, some extra treats on behalf of us here at One in Romance. He appreciates that. <laughs> well, thank you again for uh, to Andy. Thanks to all of you who are listening. Uh, and until next time, happy reading, everybody. 